Welcome back to Public Health Explained. This is a relatively new series from Everything is Public Health where we break down some basic public health principles for you. In our first Public Health Explained episode, we covered incidence and prevalence. We talked about different kinds of prevalence, for example, point prevalence, period prevalence, or lifetime prevalence. So definitely check that one out if you missed it. Yes, very... uh, Educational. (laughs) I think you did a good job. Like, given that we don't have whiteboards and we can't really show a powerpoint or anything we have to use our words to emphasize a point i thought it was pretty good but yeah so we're gonna move on to the second chapter of or the second lesson uh shall shall we say of this series lesson two of public health explained so one of the things that public health people are always trying to do is figure out what makes people unhealthy not necessarily sick but just like what makes people unwell which isn't always easy Unlike medical science, where you can sort of look at things directly and run lab tests and observe results directly with your eyes, public health stuff typically aren't like that. Right. So we sometimes in public health are studying big things, complicated things. Mm -hmm. You know, we've talked previously about social determinants of health. How can things like education and environment and access to transportation impact your health and well-being Things that often may give you some kind of exposure, but might not result in a health-related issue for a longer time. Long-term, complicated stuff. Also rare stuff. Sometimes the outcomes that we're interested in is not as like prevalent. And yeah, like public health is interested in so many complicated things that we don't have it as easy as like the other sciences when it comes to like testing for things. And therefore, public health has to be a little bit more creative with its study design to figure out what is harmful and what isn't. And we're going to go over one of those study designs today, the case control study, but we're going to do it in a conceptual way because I think it's not fun to just sort of teach the case control study. Like there are books for that. News fast. We are going to jazz it up a bit as much as we can about how a case control study works. Um, uh, you said zhuzh it up a bit, which zhuzh. I still don't. Is it like a generational thing? I've never heard of that word before. You've never heard to zhuzh something up? I've, no, it's. I always heard like jazz it up. I don't think it's a generational thing. I mean, maybe you're more of a. Am I using the wrong word? <laughs> no, jazz it up works, but zhuzhing something up, like that's a term I've been hearing people say since I was a wee lass. So maybe it's more of a regional thing and it's expanded. Oh, could be. You're in the Pacific Northwest. I am just in the Pacific. <laughs> yeah, but uh, now, you know, people all over say it. So I don't really know. Interesting. All right. So a way that we can start looking at what is making people unhealthy is by starting with the outcome first. So when I say outcome, it could mean a lot of things, but typically it's people who are sick, but not just like generally sick. Like typically when we look for an outcome to study, we're looking for people who are sick in a specific way. Right. If we're using a case control study, we want the definition of a case, those sick people to be well-defined. You might have multiple symptoms, but they should be generally very specific to the thing you're looking at. And MJ, you said disease, but we can also use case control studies for anything, yeah. injuries or other issues. And the idea is, is to define it so that you know the outcome that you're looking for, right? If you just said anyone with a fever, like that's, I'm sure there's an idiom for this here. That's like just like throwing a bunch of dart at the dartboard and just seeing what sticks. Or throwing, is that an idiom? Throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks yeah, is a, like, a common one. But so we can talk about this concept later on. Mm-hmm. But there are things when we're talking about tests that refer to as sensitivity and specificity. We don't need to get into that here, but just a future lesson knowing that you want people who fall into your cases to be cases and not potentially people who may have a different 
issue with similar symptoms who end up in your cases because then that will mess up your case control study. Yeah. And actually researchers go through a painstaking amount of like refining to define how they do their cases. Like, is it, are we talking about just people from this year or are we talking about people just from this neighborhood? Like they go through a lot of like, what's the academic way to say rewriting? Revise? (laughs) Revising, I guess, the same proposal over and over again before they actually settle on a case definition. We refine things as we work through it. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if there's like a fancier word that you're looking for, but I feel like there is a fancy academic word for that process, but uh, maybe it's escaping both of us. We go through multiple iterations. Yes. And maybe with using more words <laughs> to describe this process. <laughs> but yeah, you, you have a set of case definition that you're, you're, you and your team, because usually a team effort, have settled on. And so let's go through a scenario. So let's say people with a specific type of cancer are being flagged, right? We're seeing a bunch of these new specific type of cancers coming up. We usually don't see them in this population. And we want to find out why. Like, why are these people getting this specific type of cancer? So the one way we, that we can do is we can ask those people with cancer a, a bunch of questions about their background and run a bunch of lab tests. But that's not really that helpful. Well, it depends on the cancer, right? So it depends on the context. But cancer can be a slow growing. It can be related to different health behaviors, genetic factors. So you need to to really be clear on what it is that, that we're looking for. But you can't just look at the people who have cancer. You need someone to compare it to, right? You need to understand what kinds of exposures and risks and genetic factors also occur in people who don't get that kind of cancer. Yeah. And this idea of a control, you're going to see throughout pretty much all study design, right? Ideally, we will want a control that's sort of randomly sampled, but sometimes we can't do that. But you want to compare it with people who don't have it, because if you only look at people who are cases, essentially what you're getting is a biased picture for what the real picture is if you only look at cases. So we need to compare it with people who are similar in a lot of ways, but they don't have the specific cancer or case that we're looking for. Now, this is the challenging part, because how do we find controls? Like what criteria do we use? and where to find them, I guess. This is always a challenging part. In in general, we want our comparison group or our control group to be as similar as possible to the group of cases. So if our cases are occurring among older white males who are between the ages of 75 and 85, it really probably won't do us a ton of good to compare to younger white males who are between the ages of 25 and 35, right? Or or African-American males or whatever it is. So we really want to try to get a similar group. So you might think about what we colloquially refer to as the usual suspects when we're thinking about variables we might want to consider. So age, gender, occupation, geography, those kinds of pieces. And yeah, the idea is to get a, a similar group of people who don't have that case definition. And here's the tricky part, though. So with a thing like cancer, we have like a general list of usual suspects that we want to like eliminate from our analysis. But there is such thing as overmatching, right? Because if we control for a certain variable when looking at a control, we can't run analysis on it. So if we say, OK, let's control for age. So we're going to make sure our control matches our case in terms of age range. That means we can't run analysis because we match them on age. Right. For example, if you try to find a matched control for each of your cases, all the things you match on. So let's say your case is a white male who is the age 35. 
and you find a control who is a white male, age 35, you can't test for differences by age, race, gender, because you've matched on those things. You're, you have to test for associations of different pieces. And so when we're thinking about the group of cases and the group of controls, you want a group that is similar to your cases, but you don't necessarily want, in some instances, you do want a matched one one, right. pair, but that's a we'll put that aside for a moment. In general, you want to be able to assess for how some of these differences within the populations and between the populations might also be contributing to your cases, your outcome. So you want to match on the usual suspects and maybe a little bit more, but you don't want to overmatch because the more you match, the less you can analyze. Um, So let's say you've done that. Let's say you have a bunch of cases and you match on the usual suspect. You found a bunch of control. Now, stats is one of those mysterious things that we're just not going to get into, but statistically speaking, you want more than one control per every case you have. There is a reason for this. I am not going to explain it because <laughs> I, one, out. I can't. Would you like to explain it? No, no, no. <laughs> okay. If you're interested, uh, you can you know apply for a public health program and then you can learn all about why you want more than one control for every case. But statistically speaking, that's what you need. You need more than one control for every case that you have. Trust us on this. So let's say you got those control and you got those cases. And now the fun begins. You're going to try to collect data on both the control and the cases, and you're going to try to analyze the differences in there, what we call exposure, right? So we started with an outcome, and now we're going back in time, more or less, and you're looking for exposures that the controlling cases might have. So I think it might be helpful to spend just another minute or two talking about why we want to start with the outcome. We maybe alluded to it in the beginning, but I don't know that we have sort of very specifically said case control studies are a kind of study that are very beneficial when there is a rare outcome, which MJ, you did mention at the start, but just to get a little bit more explicit, sometimes there are outcomes that are of immense interest, but they happen in a small proportion of the population. And so gathering enough data from everybody to try to figure out what's going on is not reasonable. So then we need to identify those people who have the outcome of interest, those cases, as we were just talking about, finding folks to compare them to, to try to get a sense of what might be happening, right? Often we're doing case control studies as an exploration or even sometimes hypothesis testing to help us figure out what's going on. So then we can justify these larger, more intensive, more costly studies. But I thought that maybe we could just do that quick orientation before we jump into the advantages and disadvantages of this kind of study design, just to help people keep in mind, like, why are we doing this in the first place? Yeah. Like you said, it's great for rare stuff. And it's also relatively cheap because you sort of have your cases already. So you don't need to go looking for them. Typically, people do this because they know there is an outcome that they want to know. And then they go from there. And like you said, very exploratory and often leads to more studies down the line. Now that you have your two groups, and then you can start looking back in time for the type of exposures that they have. And typically, like researchers aren't just like uh, swapping their entire history. Typically, researchers have like an idea of what sort of exposure that they're looking for. So in a case of cancer, after you control for the usual suspects, you might start looking at like, hey, like, do you work with dangerous chemicals? You know, like there are certain questions that researchers probably already have in mind to sort of start exploring in terms of exposures and not. 
it's very rarely that researchers have no idea what to look for because otherwise why would you have a study right usually you have something in mind and then you do the study right but sometimes you know we might have a hypothesis or we might have something in mind or there may be even some prior research to suggest that something is associated but maybe there hasn't been a large enough sample size or maybe it's only been replicated in one geographic area and you want to test in other areas to help build out that information. I think maybe we've talked about this previously on the show, but one of the biggest challenges in public health is often there are questions we want to answer, but we cannot randomize people to be exposed or not exposed. And so the best way for us to start to answer some of those questions Mm -hmm. in an attempt to try to understand a causal relationship is to start to build out some of these case control studies and other types of designs that we can talk about later help us to understand the relationship between different exposures and the outcome. Yeah. So in our example, we have our two groups. All right. So you've done your work as a researcher. You've identified cases of people who have your outcome. Let's say it's mesothelioma. You've also gone through and identified a relevant set of individuals to be in your control group or your comparison group, right? And then you look back to see what kinds of things these groups are exposed to. And you will have some folks who are cases who were exposed to something. And you'll also have folks who were cases who weren't exposed to something. And in your control group, you'll have some folks who happen to be exposed and folks who didn't. And we think about this, if everybody could visualize a box, a square that is cut into four quadrants. So you've got four boxes and along the top, the columns give you the folks who have the case or the control, and the rows are the exposed versus the unexposed. So if we're thinking about the example of mesothelioma, for a very long time, there was a hypothesis that exposure to asbestos was the thing that led to mesothelioma. But it can take decades, 40 years or more in some cases, for people to develop mesothelioma. So very smart people got together and said, okay, we've got cases that have mesothelioma. We have controls without mesothelioma. We have people who were exposed to asbestos, and we have people who were not exposed to asbestos. And people, cases, and controls got put into one of those quadrants, depending on their exposure. And then you look to see of the people who are cases and exposed versus other groups who was more likely to end up in the case bucket based on the exposure. And if more people who are exposed end up in the case bucket than people who are exposed and not in the case bucket, that can help you get a sense of whether your exposure is leading to your cases. And you would do one of these tables for every exposure that you have. You wouldn't have like a a two column table with like a bunch of rows, you have a separate table for every exposure that you're interested in. So maybe one table for asbestos, one table for lead, one table for whatever, right? But yeah, that's essentially, that's it. Like that is a case control study. For folks who may be less familiar with epidemiology and public health, what we were just describing, that's referred to as a two by two table. So MJ, your point about you would only look at one exposure at a time, it's because you have two and two. You have two groups, which are your cases, and you have two groups, which are your exposures, and you overlay them to see where the odds of ending up in a box are based on your exposure. Yes. And a lot of fancy stats go on to figure out whether these differences are significant, uh, which we're not going to get into because stats is a mysterious thing and it's very hard to do over an audio medium. But you essentially do a bunch of these two by two tables and then you run some stats and then you'll figure out that, hey, there is a significant correlation between this exposure and our cases. And 
That is a case control study. Never before have I missed being able to draw something out on a whiteboard yeah, or show hard. a PowerPoint slide <laughs> yeah. in my life. Like this is one of the most challenging things to talk through without I personally am a very visual learner. Yeah. Now, I also am a big reader of educational research and I know that we don't necessarily need to teach to people's preferred learning style right. because people can learn in all sorts of different ways. Yeah. But I'm realizing doing this that I'm also a visual teaching style. And so I rely on being able to show something to help explain. So thanks, listeners, for <laughs> suffering through this case control verbal explanation. Yeah. And if you all want to learn more, we'll have resources in the episode description. Or you could just, you know, apply for a public health graduate school. That also helps. Um, <laughs> what you said reminds me of like when writers, one of the writing exercises that creative writers undergo is that they would put restraints on themselves. So let's say I'm going to write a chapter that only uses first person. I'm going to write a chapter like in this sort of format, like by putting restrictions on yourself, you're training a part of a muscle that you're not typically using. So I feel like we're going through a similar exercise by putting restrictions. I am. Yeah, yeah. I'm all about that. Anything I can do to help my own teaching moving forward. Okay, so we've talked about what a case control study is. We've alluded to some of the advantages and why we might do this. MJ, do you want to tee up for us a few of the disadvantages? What are some limitations to case control studies? Yeah, so the obvious disadvantages is that a case control study falls under the giant bucket of observational study. So you can't really do causation because even though you could try your hardest to find the best control there is, but you're going to be subject to a lot of bias because cases are already selected for you. Like the cases were not randomly sampled and then you expose them, they're they're selected for you. So you can't really do causation. You can say there's a high correlation. You can say this is an indicator for further research, but you can't really come out. Or there's strong association. Yeah, you you have to use like, you know, I don't want to say softer language, but it's kind of what it is. You can't really say this causes this because of a case control study. People will laugh at you. Right. And that goes back to the point we mentioned previously that we don't get to randomize people. Sometimes it's unethical, right? It would be unethical to say, we're going to randomize you to smoking and you not, or we're going to randomize you to asbestos exposure and you not. And so sometimes we rely on these naturally occurring pieces, which we think about selection bias, who opts into different kinds of jobs that might expose them to different things, et cetera, which make it hard to test causation. Yeah. We'll have to do an episode all about like ethics in research because there was a period of time in human history where ethics was not a concern not that long ago <laughs> not that long ago another disadvantage is that you can't really generate incidence data uh remember from our first lesson incidents meaning new cases uh you can't generate like new case data because we don't have any new cases we started out with the cases and then we went backwards the outcome already happened. I think that's a weird way to explain that. How would you explain it? Like you're not generating new incidents. Like you have a set of cases and you're going backwards to look for exposure. We're not generating new incidents unless you're out spreading the disease. That's true. You're not generating new incidents. I think the, the phrasing was what kind of threw me off. I think maybe this might not tell us anything about new cases moving forward because the cases in our study, they've already happened. We're going back in time to figure out what they were exposed to. Now, we might figure out that there is some exposure that we could work to address and perhaps influence incidents, but the study in and of itself doesn't generate information on 
incidents of new cases moving forward because our cases have already occurred. Yeah. And we alluded to this earlier, the selection of control can be very tricky. And the last major disadvantages is that, I mean, if, if we're going backwards, if there's like bad records or bad data source, the researcher's hands are tied like if they just can't access the data for exposure that they want to. And a lot of cases... There are bad records and there are a lot of like unreliable data sources, which makes potentially if you're looking for something that happened over 40 years ago, makes that very tricky and arguably impossible. Um, so that's another disadvantage, if especially if you have like bad records or, or you're looking for something that's like super long ago. Yeah. Important point. Also not unique only to case control studies. So there are other kinds of studies that also use uh, retrospective designs, looking back at administrative data or other kind of records that were not originally collected for the purposes of research, Oh yeah, which can make it very challenging to get the information we need. So maybe there's data that's available, but it doesn't give you your variable of interest exactly the way you want it. And so you have to make adjustments in that. So there are some challenges, again, with having to access previously collected data or other records, but it's also way less expensive than having to go and collect that information yourself. So trade-offs. Again, one of the advantages, very cheap to do, relatively cheap to do. Yeah. And if you read any like academic articles, you'll see like a lot of like qualifications that they put uh, limitations of the study. Uh, That's a huge section typically in a lot of papers. But yeah, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health, our new Public Health Explained series. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and spread the word so more people can learn about the awesomeness of public health. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please give us a rating and a review whenever you listen to your podcast. It does help the show immensely. Send us questions or comments or new topics you want us to explain to everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. Reach out if you think we missed an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. This episode is brought to you by Glass Bottles. You know, the thing that does the same thing as a plastic bottle, but can actually be recycled. Yes, it's brought to you by Glass Bottles. (laughs) Follow us on Twitter at everythingisph or Instagram at everythingispublichealth. You can also find me on Twitter at Dr. Krafasi. More information regarding this episode can be found in the show notes below. Listeners, please visit our website, which is now our Patreon page for all major updates and bonus material. We are 100% Patreon supported, and we do this not for the big paychecks from sponsors, but for the love of public health and listeners like you. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can support us on our Patreon page. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health.